Hey, everybody, this is Alan Arnett, and I am just absolutely thrilled to death. I know I always say this, but I am absolutely thrilled to death to be uh, interviewing today with Dawa Stephen Sherpa. Dawa is in Kathmandu. Um, so good morning, Dawa. Good evening for me. Good morning, Alan. And, and uh, he is the managing director, CEO of Asian Trekking. And um, I was joking with Dabo a few minutes ago saying that Asian Trekking may be the biggest company in Nepal that few people have heard of, but a lot of people do know them for a very good reason. Uh, started by his dad uh, back in 2000, I'm sorry, 1981. Um, it became, uh, he slowly grew it uh, into a company that became one of the largest and today is the largest uh, in terms of of trekking and guiding in the mountains throughout Nepal. Dawa took it over in uh, 2007 as the managing director CEO, as I said, and uh, they have a very enviable record. Uh, one of the things that they have really set the bar very high on is running what they call the Eco Everest uh, climbs, where they have collected a t just literally tons upon tons of trash off of Everest and other mountains. They invented the cash for trash program, uh, which uh, gave Sherpas um, basically uh, an incentive to bring down used bottles and a ton of other things. So Dawa, I'm super excited to talk with you today. Thank you, Alan. I'm really happy to be you know, talking to you. <laughs> so we're gonna talk about several things, um, talk about a little bit about Asian trekking as a company, and then talk about COVID in Nepal and in the Kumbu. Uh, talk about the upcoming Everest 2021 season, which uh, you guys are going to be running. Uh, other companies around the world have, have canceled, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. And then I want to talk about some of the crazy stuff that this man does, like uh, jumping out of airplanes over the Himalayas and riding a bike, a mountain bike from Kalapatar down to Nanchi Bazaar, um, and doing a lot of some first ascents here recently. And uh, he'd actually, they actually ran a trip last year up at Brunsay, one of the few uh, uh, summits in the uh, autumn season in 2020. But let's start it off with uh, talking about Asian trekking. So first off, let me ask you uh, on a just a uh, open-ended question. How are you, your dad, the family, uh, the Asian trekking family doing relative to COVID right now? Well, I mean, you know, like everybody else around the world, we've uh, had a really bad year last year. Um, but, uh, you know, we're, we're an old company, so, you know, we, we have been able to weather things like this in the past as well, you know. Um, so uh, thankfully, we haven't had to lay anybody off. Um, and, you know, uh, it looks like this spring season is going to be good for us. Uh, so, yeah, you, know, um, we're, you know, we're optimistic now. So, so Asian Trekking is one of the few companies that has uh, permanent employees. I mean, you don't just hire people for uh, a, a mountain, of, you know, to guide on Everest or um, Manuslu or whatever. Tell us a little bit about the company and a little bit about the history of Asian Trekking. Okay. Um, so um, the history of Asian Trekking, well, basically, um, the history of Asian Trekking is my family's history, right? So Actually, my grandfather got into mountaineering. So in the uh, 60s, my grandfather was supporting a lot of these, uh, the, the logistics for a lot of the expeditions, including the first American expedition yeah. uh, to Everest, right? So he was in charge of the, the porters and the yaks. Um, and so, um, you know, um, uh, my father got into the business, of course, naturally. Um, he was one of the first students at the Kumjung school that Sir Edmund Hillary set up. So he was one of the first kids to, from the Kumbu who could actually speak English. So his first guiding, he first guided tourists at the age of 11. Oh my gosh. Right? So it was just sort of, you know, it was in the family, right? And uh, my, father, my father and my mother set up uh, the company Asian Trekking in 1981. 
And now this is our 40th year. Um, and yeah, I'm, you know, really proud to be sort of, you know, um, taking on that responsibility and, you know, taking it into the next generation, right? So, so um, from the early days of just supporting to now sort of organizing, guiding, all of that. So, yeah. You know, there's only a few companies around the world that have been around guiding in this industry for 40 years, like Mountain Madness and maybe Adventure Consultants. So Asian Trekking really uh, stands, uh, stands very proud in, in, that, uh, in that heritage. So um, when you took it over, uh, what kind of goals did you set for yourself for the company in 2007? Because that was right in the kind of a, an inflection point, especially in the Everest season, uh, you know, because the next year uh, China closed Everest because of the Olympics. And I mean, business was just exploding and then it kind of fell off the wall. So tell us about that, that period. Um yeah, um, when I take, uh, took over the company, actually, uh, the, the whole industry was uh, in a bad state. Nepal was in a bad state, right? It wasn't, you know, we had the whole political turmoil and the Maoists yeah. and all of that. And so, um, so my first job was to sort of organize the whole organization. It's not just Asian trekking. Uh, you know, within our organization, we also have lodges up in the Kumbu, um, you know, and we have a, a, a tour company as well. Uh, at that time, we didn't have Top Out, so um, yeah. the oxygen company, which I partnered with Ted, uh, the late Ted Atkins. Uh, but, you know, we, we had an organization under us and it, and it was all suffering. So I had to streamline everything. So my, my first task was actually to make the company more streamlined, more efficient and sort of um, more goal oriented. And when I say goal oriented, I, we, um, I always felt that, you know, like um, we could always do better. Uh, and... In the past, uh, we had a lot of business, right? Um, so uh, we had a lot of volume business, I should say. And I didn't really want to go too much down the line of running big volume business, right? Like uh, hundreds of clients and then not being able to give them the, the due uh, attention and the service that, they, that, you know, that is required. Not only because it's bad for the company, but it's also bad for, for the safety of these, uh, of these climbers. Um, you know, you start, you know, you start running uh, volume, you have to run on price, when you run on price, you start to cut corners. And that's not something that I, you know, I wanted to do ever. And so we've actually always been a little bit more expensive, right? Actually, we're probably one of the more expensive Nepali companies compared to the other, uh, you know, the other operators in the market. And um, yeah, so my, my basic idea at that time was to give really good, you know, high end, I wouldn't say high end, but really good uh, uh, service with best yeah. practice, you know, uh, on par with international operators. Yeah, you know, my, my good friend and, and your good friend, Bill Burke, uh, the oldest American to summit uh, from both sides. Um, you know, I think he's been with Asian Trekking on Everest six or seven times. It's a big number. But uh, he is one of your most loyal customers I know. Uh, and I think, um, you know, but that, that goes to speak for the, the quality of service and that uh, you've been able to provide consistently over decades at this point. So, um, yeah, we talk I mean, that's what we want to do, right? We, yeah. We want to be, um, like, like I was saying, like we, we're here already for 40 years. And my aim is to be here for at least another 40 years before I hand it over to the next generation, right? So, <laughs> well, you're you're what you're you're right around 40 years old yourself right now, right? So, <laughs> so you you've got plenty of time to go. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, almost there. 
<laughs> so you know, I, one quick question on, uh, I love your, the way you positioned when you came into the business or began to manage it in 2007 with the streamlining and the business acumen that you showed, did that come from your mother or from your father or did it come from your uh, university training and uh, schooling in, uh, in Ireland? I think um, I think a little bit of everything. Um, yeah. Of course, my mother's Belgian, right? So mm-hmm. she she you know uh, she's very sort of particular uh, in the way she does things. Uh, <laughs> Nepali mentality is very sort of uh, you know it's very ad hoc. Uh, Belgian mentality is very organized, you know, and and pre planned. So um, I you know that definitely came you know that aspect definitely came from my mother, uh, but it's been mixed in with my Nepali sort of mindset as well which is you know you you need to be organized but you cannot be rigid especially working in a nepal in a a nepali context because things change from moment to moment right so i feel that i've been able to do that you know these years you know over these years so sounds like you got working so far sounds like you got the best of both sides then (laughs) so let's talk a bit a little bit about um about the virus and what's going on with COVID-19 in, uh, in Nepal. You know, back um, in, the, in about this time last year, the prime minister said that he declared Nepal was a uh, COVID-free uh, country. And a lot of people said that the virus couldn't survive at that altitude or, you know, in the Kumbu. And sadly, at this point, I think it's, you know, uh, it's uh, tens of thousands of cases and two, couple, over 2,000 deaths. Um, what's the state like in, uh, let's start in Kathmandu. What's your take on the state there in the city, the capital? Well, um, it's actually uh, really, there's something strange going on. There's a strange phenomenon going on in Nepal to start off with, because we've, we're pretty much operating as normal now. Oh, hmm. Alan, can you hear me? I, yeah. I don't know, I yeah. thought the, the internet went a bit choppy there. Yeah, yeah uh, like the whole country is operating like it's normal now, right? Um, you may or may not know that there's a lot of political rallies happening right now because the prime minister has declared elections sometime in May. Right. April, May. Now, there's hundreds of thousands of people uh, in the in the streets since uh, late December, right? Just 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 before Christmas, and the number of cases aren't increasing, and the number of deaths aren't increasing either. So there's something strange going on. So, you know, there's talk about maybe, you know, the, the, the tuberculosis, uh, tuberculosis virus that we, uh, tuberculosis uh, vaccine that we get as children might be playing a role yeah. in this or something like that. Yeah. But despite all these, despite, you know, all the, you know, Nepal makes rules, but nobody follows them, right? So like <laughs> with the whole lockdown thing and everything like that. Um, we were really, really scared that it was going to go out of control, but doesn't seem to be for some reason. And I don't have an answer for why that is. So, um, you know, it could be that we, you know, we have some sort of a herd immunity already because we might have been infected already and didn't know because we many of us are asymptomatic. On another side as well, on the other side as well, um, Nepal is <clears throat> a largely young population. You know, I think something like uh, half the the country's population is under the age of 30, right? So that also means, you know, um, that there are going to be uh, by ratio less deaths and and less serious cases. So it could be a fact, you know, all these factors. So in any case, uh, Nepal is operating as if everything is normal. Of course, there are measures in place, you know, 
um, we still wear masks and we still, you know, maintain physical distance. It's become a habit now more yeah. than government, you know, regulation. It's just like you just don't shake hands nowadays, right? Um, you don't go close and talk. You know how, Nepal, you know, Alan, you've been to Nepal. Nepalis like to get really close and, you know, <laughs> they, they're really, you know, uh, it, it, it's it's a very different sort of, you know, um, they, they show uh, camaraderie in, in a much more sort of closer way than, than the West does. But you'd be really surprised now if you came to Nepal. People don't do that. People do maintain that distance that they didn't in the past. Mm. So things are changing here. And, you know, the situation looks okay so far. It's not to say that we don't have, you know, sure. cases uh, still happening, people still dying, um, but not as bad as we thought. So do you think that the quarantine uh, requirements will be lifted uh, by the time the Everest um, people begin to come? Uh, there's a there's a very good likelihood that it's going to happen. Um, I was um, with the tourism minister last year, uh, uh, sorry, last week rather, um, with uh, the Expedition Operators Association. So we went as a delegation, um, and we were talking to the tourism minister. Now the tourism minister himself, before he became the tourism minister, was the health minister who drew up all the quarantine protocols. Okay. Who drew up all the the lockdown protocols, right? So, so he understands the, the uh, he was the health minister. What, did I say health minister? Yeah, yeah. So he was the health minister before he was the tourism minister. Okay. So he knows all of these, uh, all of these, um, um, uh, all the ins and outs of both sides. And now he has himself said, I realize that things um, like, it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense that we are, locking up locking up tourists in hotels while the whole country goes about as if there's nothing going on we're more likely to infect the tourist than the tourist is going to infect us so quarantine in this context does not make sense hmm. so that's those are his words right so um he is working on uh, relaxing the quarantine protocols of course testing will become much more important but testing has you know we have really good testing facilities now uh, it's very very fast so uh, you know, people coming in, you know, I had uh, some Indian um, uh, clients come in a couple of weeks ago, you know, they got uh, tested when they got on the plane, they got tested the moment they arrived here, and then they got tested again before they took their flight back to Delhi. So testing is really fast, it's really, you know, reliable, and it's working so far, right? And that might be the, the course of action we take. Uh, now, the second thing as well is that Nepal is getting a lot of vaccines from India and from the European Union. Uh, and there are more coming in. Um, by the end of February, there will be more than 5 million vaccines already uh, in Nepal. Uh, so uh, 3 million from India and 2 million from the European Union. And that number is going to go up to uh, over 10 million by the end of March. That's almost so, a third of the country. Um, and Nepal being, uh, you know, our population is only 20. Yeah, it's, a, it's a more than a third of the country. Right? It's 27 million people. So uh, it looks like, you know, um, by the time people come here, a lot of the Nepalis might already be inoculated. So that's, again, really good news for us. Well, how do you feel about, so that's great news for Kathmandu. That's a lot of new information that, uh, that uh, I haven't seen. What about up in the Khumbu? Because uh, there was that one case in Namchi where they uh, were able to take the person, bring him back to Kathmandu, and then they did contract tracing, and they felt like that it, that it had not spread. What's your feeling about let me let me focus this uh, very clearly on what's your feeling about having people from around the world uh, that, to your point, may be asymptomatic, 
going into the Kumbu, where it does have a uh, uh, an elderly population compared to Kathmandu, which is very, like, to your point, young and urban. Um, are you concerned about that at all? Um, not anymore, and I'll tell you why. Um, I'm glad that you only know of that one case of COVID that happened in the Kumbu, but Kumbu's had many cases of COVID already. Okay. So my relatives have had COVID, um, you know, my manager in Kumjung, uh, him and his wife had COVID. They they were you know uh, in isolation for uh, two weeks in, in their own little house in Kumjung. So the COVID has already gotten there, and then now th there don't seem to be any cases uh, anymore. Um, so like there are, uh, we've already had uh, teams going from here from Kathmandu, uh, training up the lodge owners on how you know COVID protocols, what to do, you know. Sanit uh, sanitation and all of that sort of stuff. So, so Kumbu is prepared to take in customers. And as I said, the, the mentality in the beginning in the Kumbu was that we shouldn't allow others to bring COVID here. Now the mentality again is like, we're more likely to infect the foreigners than the foreigners are, are going to infect us, right? So in this case, again, it doesn't make sense that everything shut down or locked down. And the, the Kumbu rural municipality, the Pasangalamo rural municipality, initially required PCR tests before getting onto a local flight. Right. And, and, and it was causing, it wasn't just for tourists, it was for everybody, but it was causing a lot of grief for the local people, you know, who, who needed to go in and out, you know, the people still need to get on with their lives. And so uh, just in the last month, they've also taken, you know, they've gotten rid of that um, requirement. If you're already in Nepal, then you don't need to get a PCR test to go to the Kumbu. If you're, uh, uh, coming from abroad, you're going to have to get a PCR test anyways to get yeah. out of hotel quarantine. So, you know, um, so they've said, you know, it doesn't make any sense to do that. Okay, that's, that's really good news. Um, you know, as, as you, I know you are aware that there have been several uh, foreign operators um, all the way from Alpenglow to uh, Adventure Consultants that have decided not to run Everest this year, uh, citing COVID concerns and safety concerns and primarily that the point that you were just talking about of having foreigners infecting uh, Nepalis. Uh, so, but Asian trekking is going to be running, running. So obviously you feel comfortable in bringing foreigners in and, and going up. So talk, talk to us a little bit about your Everest uh, 21 program. How's it looking this year? Yes. Uh, sure. So um, I have uh, mainly Indian and Chinese customers this year which was to be expected, right? Yeah. And so actually during, um, during the lockdown, I actually doubled my efforts uh, in India and in China more than anywhere else. Um, India, because we are so close and the border is so porous, uh, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever to, to block them. And mm -hmm. so the government knew that really early in advance. And so we are sort of a travel bubble between India and Nepal, right? So Indians don't actually, uh, you know, Indians never needed visas to come to Nepal. Nepalese never needed visas to go to India. So um, Indians, Indians don't need to stay in quarantine if they're oh. coming here. But they do need P PCR tests, uh, uh, negative test reports, right? So that, that all is there. So in a, in a way, we are, con you know, we consider Indians sort of like an extension of Nepal or Nepal an extension of India. Right. You know, you know, yeah, yeah. Without, without getting into the politics of it. So, <laughs> We, yeah, we don't want to go into the politics. That's, you know, a whole different can of worms. But um, so, yeah, so in 
Indians are looking at coming to Nepal and Nepal are very keen to have Indians back. Um, then again, the Chinese, because uh, they're our closest market and they're our neighbor, you know, the, the whole Northern border, border is China. And we have been trying to have better relations with them, but Chinese are a little bit more difficult, right? Um, especially going, you know, coming to Nepal won't be a problem for them. Going back, they're going to have to quarantine for 14 days. Um, so th this is a problem for the Chinese, but you know, um, these guys have been waiting to, to uh, go to the mountain for you know, over a year now. Yeah. So they're keen, they're, they're, they're happy to absorb that 14 days. We, we, uh, I see clearly that um, the, uh, there, there's going to be a sizable number of uh, climbers on Everest um, and a few other peaks, but very few trekkers coming. Uh, this oh. season. Uh, and the reason is because um, the climbers in their itinerary, you know, that could last nine to 10 weeks, you know, they can very easily absorb five days of quarantining in a hotel. So that it, it doesn't make a big difference to their trip. But somebody who's coming for an Everest base camp trek, yeah. you know, that's 14, 15 days. Five days is a third of your of your holiday, right? right. So it, they're, they've been put off by that. So I, I see that in, in my own inquiries um, from my own clients. Uh, and again, Indians are going to be the number one uh, trekkers this year coming to the Everest region, followed uh, by uh, Chinese. Um, and that, again, is a little bit touch and go at this stage. Yeah. Yeah. About um, I, I find the uh, demographic change over the last, let's say, 10 to 15 years really interesting. But you go back to, uh, you know, 2008, maybe uh, the, for, it was mainly Americans, Brits, uh, Germans, you know, uh, Australians, they were the top nationalities. And now today, those numbers have stayed pretty constant, but the Indians and the Chinese have just exploded. In 2019, they represented the largest two um, nationalities uh, on Everest mm -hmm. that year. So it sounds like that, that trend is going to continue this year. Yeah. So anything, anything, uh, go ahead. Yeah, no, sorry. No, I was just saying, yeah, no, Indians are the number one climbers on Everest now, Chinese second and Americans third. So a huge change and also uh, a very different way for the Nepali operators to be looking at the whole global market now. Right. We're starting to become much more regionally focused and COVID has actually accelerated that process of, of you know, uh, focusing our marketing on uh, India and China. So do you have anything special planned for, um, for Everest 21 uh, in the sense of the eco Everest or, you know, uh, trash or taking advantage of the fact that the mountain has been quiet for a year? Are you doing anything unique or special? Um, well, I'm, I always clean the mountain, right? So um, that's just something that I've said I'll, I'll always do. In fact, um, not only this year, but last year when I went to Barunse to climb, Climbing Barunse was actually an excuse to go cleaning up uh, the mountains. Um, we cleaned up uh, Choyu Base Camp, Everest Base Camp, Lhotse Base Camp, and Makalu Base Camp. Um, but I needed a permit to go there. I needed, uh, I needed official paperwork to go there. So I actually got the permit for Barunse. So it allowed me to travel to, to the, uh, <laughs> to travel from Kathmandu. Uh, and so actually Barunse, climbing Barunse wasn't the main objective of that. So, um, you know, we, we made good use of that time last year, uh, cleaning the mountain. And this year, again, we'll be cleaning again, um, not only Everest, but uh, also uh, I have uh, plans to clean up uh, Kanchenjunga, 
uh, Manas Lubase Camp, Annapurna, Dalagiri. Uh, Everest, I'm going to be there. So Everest again. Oh, do you think we'll ever get to the point where um, the people like at Camp 4 on the South Coal are using, you know, the um, blue bags and, and taking down solid human waste? Because, you know, what, last time I was there in 2016, um, you know, Camp 2 was really a mess. And that was primarily related to the to earthquake and everybody having to leave so quickly. And I think that's been addressed. But it seems like the South Coal is still an opportunity. Yeah. Um, so first of all, you know, um, we need to clean up the South Coal much more. There's still a lot of, I, I did a bit of cleaning last year. I know SPCC did, but there's still a lot more left there. Um, so there, there's still work to be done on bringing that down. But, you know, coming back to your more specific question about the blue bags, or the wag bags, or the rest yeah. stop bags, um, I've been using them since 2008 and they're so easy to use. And, and I've encouraged a lot of other companies to use them. And, you know, with mixed results. Uh, some of the Nepali companies have actually taken to it and have done it. I know a lot of the Western companies do use it, uh, but many don't, um, especially the cheaper operators don't because, you know, every bag costs about $3 by the time yeah. it comes to Nepal. So it makes it, you know, it makes a difference to their budget, right? And the only thing that uh, we can do is actually lobby the government to make it mandatory. Now, I've been doing this for over 10 years Every time the minister changes or the secretary, uh, secretary of the ministry changes, I have been lobbying. I've been taking samples, giving it to them. This is what we can do, showing them photos of, you know, uh, of how it can be done on the mountain, you know, the whole thing. And uh, every time, you know, it looks like it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And then the minister changes or the yeah. secretary changes. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, so the whole re-education program starts, you know, like, um, so... Uh, you know, Nepal is like that. You know, sometimes things take a long time to happen and then sometimes it just happens overnight and you really never know. So you have to keep knocking on that door until things change. Well, I just I know I speak for many, many people in thanking you and Asian Trekking for the efforts that you do to try to lobby the government to improve the cleanliness of the mountain as well as the safety aspect. But more specifically, uh, all of your your cleanup efforts that you've been doing consistently is, is clear that is, is part of your values, it's part of the Asian trekking mission statement to, uh, you know, to give back in a really measurable way. So let's, uh, let's shift to a couple of quick things and then uh, talk about K2 as, when we wrap up. So tell us about this skydiving and then this mountain biking from Kalapatar back down to, uh, to uh, Namshi. So let's talk, let's talk about the skydiving. Where'd that, where'd that come from? Um, so the skydiving, well, I, I actually fell into skydiving by accident. Um, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, I'm a partner of Top Out Nepal. And right. Top Out, uh, you know, is the oxygen system that my late partner Ted Atkin set up. And, um, you know, he invited me to become the, the Nepali partner. And so mm -hmm. we supply a lot of the oxygen cylinders and masks and regulators to, you know, not just my company, but to right. the whole industry here. And, Ted was also working on some interesting projects in the U.S. Uh, with regard to his top-out masks, um, you know, being used for for high-altitude uh, skydiving, and um, they wanted to do some interesting stuff here in Nepal. Uh, so they not only needed the oxygen stuff, but they also needed a logistical partner. <laughs> and so they actually, you know, they flew me to Arizona, uh, to to Phoenix, and I trained with them. Um, and my basic job is to, you know, take these people to the mountains. So you sort of marry my skills 
uh, and, and my experience and knowledge from mountaineering, marry that to the skydiving world and then make things happen. And so uh, that actually worked really well in 2019. We got uh, five um, skydivers to land at the highest uh, landing zone or the highest drop zone at 20,100 or 20,200 feet, 6,140 oh meters. Wow. So that was... That was a world record, right? The highest parachute landing ever. So, um, you know, uh, so that's how I got into it. And, and now, you know, I'm sort of addicted to it. Uh, you know, um, I, we don't have, you know, skydiving is very expensive. So uh, I'm, I've been doing paragliding instead now. So, <laughs> oh, uh, Alan, give me one minute. I need to plug my laptop in. I just realized it's about to die. Give me okay. one minute. All right, we'll, we'll right pause back. the recording and come right back. Thanks. Right. So you're you're down to one percent. Huh? So good, good save there, Dollar. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about that uh, that uh, mountain bike trip. That sounded like that was a crazy thing as well. Just uh, you and a mate, and just got a couple of mountain bikes, took the helicopter up to Kalapatar and hit the trail. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, that, actually, um, we weren't. It, the, the whole mountain biking thing was an, an afterthought, actually. Um, I'd always wanted to do it. Uh, you know, um, I've been thinking about it for years. You know, I've got a lot of ideas in my head. You know, like in 2020, <laughs> in February, we did the ice skating and the ice hockey on Gokyo Lake, right? I so saw I've, always got something, I've always got something in my head. Um, but me and my friend, we, we actually, uh, I've got some land in Bingboche. And um, me, my older brother, and my friend Sona, uh, we were going there to see what we could do there in terms of, you know, um, maybe we could build a new lodge or something like that. And so we were, we were trekking up there. And then I thought, you know what, this might be a good opportunity because there are no tourists there. So yeah. I wouldn't be bothering anyone. You know, I could cycle all the way down. And, um, <laughs> and, and because of my whole, you know, um, uh, reputation with being on the Visit Nepal board, um, you know, which is no, you know, it's defunct now, the Visit Nepal campaign, but I was on the, um, on the organizing committee. So I knew a lot of people in the government and all that. So through my links, I managed to obtain the, the, the permit to, to, to mountain bike. And um, so I said to my friend, uh, I said to Sonam, hey, Sonam, listen, uh, I'm going to cycle down. Uh, you know, you guys, why didn't you guys walk down? He goes, me, walk. I'm going to cycle with you. <laughs> so I was like, damn it. Because <laughs> it's been like, uh, I I uh, counted it. it. It had been eight years since I last cycled. I, like since I last, you know, did any mountain biking whatsoever. And so the two of us, you know, like almost in our 40s now, <laughs> decided to do something. Like they said um, we were going to walk all the way to Kalapatar, um, but then the night uh, at Dingboche, Sonam got very very happy, had a few too many whiskeys, and the next morning <laughs> he, he he's like, I'm not trekking anymore. And so. Um, <laughs> So my older brother, Nima, he wanted to go down to Lukla anyways. So I got outvoted by the two of them and they called a helicopter to drop us to, um, uh, to Kalapathar from Dingboche. So then we took the bikes to, Ding, uh, to Kalapathar and cycled all the way down to Namche. So, you know, you, you, you make up these things, you know, these adventures as you go along, right? Best laid plans. I love it. <laughs> Well, speaking of adventures, let's wrap up with this one. I mean, just the mountaineering community, I think, is extremely proud of, um, of Mingma, of NIMS, of, you know, like I call them the K210, um, you know, for accomplishing the first winter summit of K2 
and of course the last of the eight, 14, 8,000 meter mountains to be summited in wintertime. Um, you know, and NIMS did it without oxygen. Uh, the, you know, the guys did it. I think they showed exactly how that mountain could be climbed as a unified team working together. They climbed as one, they summited as one. Um, and now, you know, I think they deserve all of the respect and the, uh, and the, and the ad adulations that they're getting uh, from around the world. Um, what do you, what's your take on their accomplishment? Um, you know, this is not something that just happened. Um, this was coming. Um, we saw the development of the skills of the Sherpas, right? Um, we knew they were always strong, right? We, we, sure. we know that Sherpas are always strong in the mountains. And it was, if it was ever going to be done by anyone, we knew it was going to be Sherpas. But it, uh, my father, since the time he was the president of the Mountaineering Association, the Nepal Mountaineering Association, has focused a lot on training up Nepali uh, mountaineers, uh, mountain guides, wow. right, for the IFMGA or the UIAGM, as you might also call it. So, um, you know, making internationally certified guides and so on. So, so the skill level has been getting better and better and better every year. And so... Um, it was a matter of time until, you know, the Sherpas did something that was world-class, that, that would be recognized as world-class, you know. Um, and, you know, it happened on K2. It became, you know, it was the, the last winter ascent of an 8,000-meter mountain, but I think it's a, the, the opening of new chapter for uh, mountaineering. Um, but to be very honest, um, who, we who are in the mountaineering industry, we weren't really surprised that it was pulled off. I mean, yeah. we knew it was going to be done, yeah. right? And, and we knew that if anybody could do it, Mingma and, and Nims, their team could do it. Um, the, the thing that really touched me was more the camaraderie and, and, mm -hmm. and the, the way they did it. You know, it wasn't the Nepali strength that, you know, that impressed me personally. It was the Nepali spirit that they showed to the world. And that was more important for me because everybody knows the Nepali mountaineer is, you know, a, a different breed altogether, but it's the Nepali spirit, you know, that they showed to the world. And that's what I'm more proud of. And I think that's what we will remember much more, in, in, you know, uh, going into the future. You know, that's what we'll be more proud of. You know, the first time I came to Nepal was in 1997. I did a trek up to Everest Base Camp. And, and I always tell people that that changed my life forever. Uh, not only did, was it the mountains, the scale of the mountains, but it was the culture, the Nepali culture, the Sherpa culture, the tea houses, uh, just the entire environment, the Buddhist culture. Um, and it literally it literally changed my life. So when you talk about that, that's what you're most impressed or most proud of. Um, I totally get it because I, 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 I agree. They did it in a style which showed the world how mountaineering can be done. Uh, it's, you know, back in the 60s and the, you know, mountaineering was all about a national team. And today it's often a team of individuals. This case, it was a really collective, tight, cohesive team of brothers that, um, that proved to the world just what, you know, what world-class climbers and also style can accomplish. So again, you know, tip of the hat to those guys. Um, yeah, absolutely. Anything else you want to add as we wrap up? Oh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know you're the interviewer. <laughs> no, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just really happy to, you know, connect with you and uh, share my thoughts. Uh, you know, here's, uh, you know, hoping that we have a good year 
and you know at the same time let's hope this covid uh, is taken care of by the summer or if, you know so that we have actually um, a, a very good trekking season in the autumn we know the spring's not going to be good um, but you know uh, it's not just mountaineers there's hundreds no thousands uh, of uh, trekking guides and porters who depend on the trekking as well so you know here's really hoping that you know things will normalize soon so yeah, Nepal. Nepal's got 2020 was a tough year, you know, for visit Nepal when you can't visit Nepal. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, exactly. uh, you know, I think all of us that uh, have a lot of our heart in Nepal are really hoping that uh, it's a successful Everest season. Uh, that you know, it's a no, it's a no drama season, uh, in that the tourism does pick up post monsoon. Yeah. So, best of luck to you, Dawa. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, my best Thank to your you. father, to your family, and uh, have a have a great spring season. Thank you very much. All Thank right. Namaste.